Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands of Eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our human relationships to the rest of nature. We talk about ecology, forestry, community, conservation, and other interconnected issues. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Nothing presented here is intended as the final word. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground where as humans we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to thriving ecosystems and the well-being of all the incredible life we share this planet with. This week, join me and Mike Lancaster as he tells about a canoe trip he, with three others, completed in less than a day in which they traveled from one side of the province to the other and about why they did this. Learn the many reasons why folks are dedicated to the creation of an Ingram River wilderness area, as well as some surprising facts about the size and age of some trees in our region, and some interesting history involving foresters' reaction to the pulpwood industry in Nova Scotia in the 60s. Mike Lancaster is an incredible wealth of information. I found he is helpful to learn from because of his clear way of explaining and connecting things, and because of the many hats he wears. Mike Lancaster's work crosses multiple disciplines with a focus on forestry, conservation, and community development. Some of the many roles that Mike fills include being the executive director of the St. Margaret's Bay Stewardship Association, the stewardship coordinator for the Woodins River Watershed Environmental Organization, and the coordinator of the Healthy Forest Coalition. Mike also sits on the board of the Medway Community Forest Cooperative. In addition, he also owns his own forest and trail management and consulting company, where he works with clients to implement management strategies to achieve their goals, while ensuring that ecological values take the forefront of decision-making. Mike and I met at the St. Margaret's Bay Community Enterprise Centre, or CEC for short. This is within Mi'kma'ki, on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Mi'kmaq people. The Community Enterprise Centre is an inspiring place which brings together community and business. According to their website, it is a perfect resource to connect, engage, share experiences and expertise, and, most of all, build on what is at the very heart of the CEC, bringing people together to create a stronger, more vibrant community. I started off my conversation with Mike by asking him about the type of work he does through his company. The work that I do is, is really small scale. Um, I, it's all chainsaw work or, or in a lot of cases even handsaw work. Um, so when I first started my career in forestry, I, I did work for several agricultural and, and forestry companies, uh, but got somewhat disenfranchised with what was available to me as, as somebody who wanted to work in this kind of romantic setting where we're cutting a couple of trees a day and they're pulled by large Clydesdale horses and uh, it's it's more of a, an extremely long-term approach that's dominated by forest ecological values rather than commercial values that you kind of develop a relationship with that forest mm-hmm. and it's not to say that that doesn't exist but often the relationship that we've developed especially with our public forests is, is has been skewed towards uh, kind of an extractive relationship so I, I, I really 
Like, I think in, in my happiest and best mental health state, I would be working in some remote location on my own with maybe a couple of really close people where all we do is, is take really delicate care of a forest and but still have uh, harvesting that occurs. But that's as somebody who didn't uh, come into a family with land or, or lots of resources, I wasn't able to buy my own land. And those kinds of opportunities are ones that you either have to come into like that or just have to have enough of an investment uh, to draw from in order to make it happen. So there was quite a need, especially for the uh, wilderness trail work that I do, uh, because that's something that there's very few people uh, in the province that do that kind of work. And, and there's, there is quite a demand for it, and especially the broader HRM, kind of the rural parts of, of HRM. So a lot of the clients that I have end up being these nonprofit organizations that are looking for somebody who's kind of willing to do what's really physically demanding work um, and doing it through a lens of how can we possibly eliminate as many ecological impacts of trail use as possible. Mm. One of the themes that we always integrate is, is how do we move people around nature rather than nature around people. Mm. So uh, it's trying to develop strategies and implementing management strategies that just yeah focus on how can we reduce our, our, our impacts of trail use as much as possible. And then do you also do some, like, is there a demand for the kind of small-scale forestry that you were saying you, you ideally would do privately? Like, are you doing some of that work too? It's definitely a much uh, smaller component of the work that, that I end up doing. My work in, in the nonprofit world uh, is very demanding as well. So there's, there's only so much time. And I normally end up committing to a number of trail projects kind of early in the year. And then I just, I don't, just don't have the time to, okay. to do any of the more forestry ones. So I kind of accidentally have become more and more focused on trails hmm. over the years. Yeah. yeah, I guess just hearing you talk, I'm kind of curious, like what sort of demand is there for real ecological forestry? Um, how many small woodlot owners are looking for that? And if they have a hard time finding people or where they would go if they wanted someone who valued things other than economics as the top priority? Yeah, that's that's definitely a challenge for a lot of small scale woodlot owners is, is finding a contractor who's able to do kind of larger scale uh, projects, but is going to be very honest and very sensitive to their values. And, and uh, they, they exist. There's definitely contractors out there, but they're they're in quite high demand as well. So it's, mm. it's kind of a niche that Nova Scotia needs a lot more of these small scale contractors who do that kind of work. Well, that's really interesting. Because you care about, you know, this Nova Scotia needs forestry, that it provides jobs, but there actually could be more jobs if there were more people available and trained to do that kind of forestry then? Yeah, it's it's something that over the years you kind of see more and more landowners that are kind of becoming uh, awakened and, and aware of uh, different methodologies and, and different long-term approaches to forest management especially. And the, the damages that things like plantations will bring, or even uh, not just monocultures, but kind of bicultures or tricultures to our, our Wabanaki Acadian forest ecosystems, which are naturally so diverse and complex. And this kind of uh, war that a lot of forestry has been trying to win that battle by creating these more uniform forests that are, are kind of, it's easier to time, it's easier, it's more uniform for harvest purposes, and it just becomes easier from a management standpoint but it doesn't quite achieve the ecological values that most Nova Scotians seem to be demanding these days. So mm. as awareness kind of continues to grow about the ways that we can work with nature rather than kind of trying to conquer it, 
Um, I think a lot more people, it's going to be a demand that's going to be continuing to grow over the, the coming years for sure. Mm-hmm. And then when you think about forestry, there is like the money side to consider as well. But can it also be true that when you manage a forest in a more diverse way for ecological reasons that it could create higher value wood products as well? Yeah, it's, it's hard to often bring that to a large scale, but, but on a small scale, that's certainly true. Um, so, for example, places like uh, Larchwood in, in Cape Breton, uh, they have a much higher ratio of amount of, of units of volume of wood like that the amount of jobs that, that generates compared to if you were to translate that to especially pulp and, and biomass harvests. But, but even uh, for lumber, you're, you're going to be producing X number of jobs per X number of tons. And, and places like Larchwood uh, produce a much higher rate of employment because they're doing a higher value product. Hmm. So it means that they're able to not only generate more money per, per ton of wood that's taken from forests, but also more jobs and therefore more benefit to the community as well. And it's, it's all stuff that stays in Nova Scotia, whereas large-scale operations like pulp, the uh, large percentage of the profits don't stay in, in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hopefully we're moving that direction. I don't know, enough people kind of seeing that path or finding alternatives. and. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that um, like I, I've been professionally doing this work for uh, over 10 years. And I'd say that awareness is much higher now than it, it was before in terms of forest ecological values and protected areas and, and the balance that's needed to increase that to kind of achieve the the balance that's necessary nova scotians are, are paying more and more attention to those those issues um than they were even five years ago i'd say with with things like the um the owl's head provincial park controversy and the most recent provincial election all of the parties committed to quite a, a large increase of protected areas uh the conservative government actually kind of out flanking the Liberals with uh, their legislation that passed of EGCRA, the Environmental Goals and Climate Change Reduction Act. We now, Nova Scotia, has a, a legal obligation to get to 20% protected areas by, by 2030. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's a big step. That means that we need to protect an additional equivalent of 10 kegis, uh throughout Nova Scotia. So that's, that's going to bring us to a balance uh, that's going to make forestry operations a lot more achievable and a lot more sustainable because they're kind of bolstered by having that better support for protected areas. And that kind of commitment only came from Nova Scotians pressuring the governments to say, this is something that we want. This is something that we need because they, they wouldn't have, have made those kinds of commitments if they didn't believe that that's what the majority of Nova Scotians wanted. Right. Well, that's really um, kind of hopeful to hear you say that because, you know, sometimes you care about an issue and you write your politicians and you you know, you try to make your your thoughts and concerns known and you feel like it just goes into a void. But I guess, yeah, the more and more people that put pressure, they have to listen. Yeah, I think that Owls Head Provincial Park, the whole issue around that, uh, hopefully really demonstrated to a lot of Nova Scotians that people can affect change. You don't need to have a PhD in soil biology to understand that some of these things will make a difference if, if you write letters, if you put pressure on, on the, both your local MLA and the governments. It, we, we all have the capacity to, to affect positive change in the world, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe this um, leads into, I, I guess just generally, I'm wondering, like, regarding the Environmental Goals and Climate Change Reduction Act, including the protection of the 20% by 2030 and other goals as well, 
what do you see as a public's power or responsibility for keeping the government on track with those goals? Or, or can we trust them to do those things? Like, is there anything the average person who cares about these things you think can and should do? It's, it's definitely always important for everybody to meet with their MLA or, or ideally meet, but even just writing an email to say, this is something that's important to me. Um, and I, you're my representative, so I, I need you to know this. Uh, those, those actually go quite a long way that to a point of when governments receive a couple of hundred letters of support for something, that's a really big deal, which when you compare that to the fact that we've got over a million people now, a couple hundred letters is not a lot, yeah. right? So it, it just kind of shows how uh, disengaged most of us are and that when we do put in effort, it, it is noticed. It's, it's the kind of thing where nobody can affect change on their own, but everybody is an individual that's part of that wave of change, right? So if nobody says, I'm going to be part of that wave, then, then everything stays the same. But when enough people start to, to realize that they have some power, then, uh, then it starts to make progress happen. Mm-hmm. We, we can never really take for granted the fact that things are in law. Um, we, we need to, as citizens, kind of continue to apply that pressure, which is a little unfortunate. That's a little more of a pessimistic side of that message. Uh, it, it shouldn't be our responsibility to ensure that, that governments uphold the laws of the land, but mm-hmm. that's what it takes. And, and we had that recently with the, um, the case uh, that was brought to the Nova Scotia Supreme Court to sue the Department of Natural Resources and Renewables for not upholding the uh, Species at Risk Act. Yeah. And they won. The, the the people that brought that case, Bob Bancroft and, and Jamie Simpson and, and the Eastern Shore Forest Watch, they won. The Supreme Court agreed with them that, yeah, the government is, is not upholding the law. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what it takes, unfortunately, sometimes to, to make progress on these things. There's been many Auditor General reports over the years saying that that the department has, has mismanaged forests and, and that we need to, to do better. And we've obviously got the, the Leahy report, as it's generally referred to as, that only came out a couple of years ago, that it's it's something that there's a lot of opportunity to affect change, but government happens at a really slow rate. Mm-hmm. So it, it does, unfortunately, kind of require uh, people to pressure the governments because we've got this kind of somewhat of a disconnect between the elected officials and, and what their goals are. And, and that's kind of difficult to, to make uh, to make them move as well. But there's, there's also a lot of entrenched bureaucracy that kind of has certain perspectives on how things are done and should be done. And that's the way that they've developed their entire careers. So it's one of uh, my uh, mentors, David Patrickwin, described it one time in, in one of the meetings that we had for the Silvicultural Guides for the Ecological Matrix Development as part of what we were called the Key uh, Stakeholder Advisory Committee. And he framed it as you wouldn't get somebody who's an ex- expert in mollusks to do some kind of uh, transformative report on crustaceans. It's very similar. They're both uh, invertebrates. They're both in the ocean. It's It's something that you can kind of see the crossover, but expecting a department that has this long established history of, of doing forestry one way, it's not even really fair to those people to expect them to be able to implement this really transformative change that reports like the Leahy report are, are calling for. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so what is necessary then? Well, as the Leahy report uh, writes, like when, when you read kind of between the lines on that, it's a really 
brutal takedown of of the history in the department and it, it's a lot of the language is really broad and sweeping and saying there needs to be systemic change in order to achieve the values that that we're talking about here i'm not sure how that change comes i think to a certain extent we we do need uh ministers and and premiers that are going to be willing to be the champion of that radical change it's going to make a lot of people unhappy for sure uh that are are kind of um entrenched into the status quo of how things perpetuate there's always going to be people that are going to that's going to hurt if if it changes uh there will be growing pains associated with that but that's always the case uh back when uh northern pulp or, or what's now called northern pulp was being proposed in the 1960s I was really interested only recently to to find out that the lumbering industry was actually quite opposed to the development of it, saying that this will decrease our access to, to lumber across the province and it'll be too consumptive. It'll just be this giant kind of tree-eating machine that we won't... Really? Yeah, and, and, and now that equation has really flipped where a lot <laughs> of the lumbering industry says we can't survive without this. So something's changed over the past 60 years. Ah, well, that's fascinating. Yeah, like- it's, uh, it's, I, I read that in, in a, there's a book called Against the Grain. Okay. Uh, that's uh, just kind of an assessment of really prominent figures and, and uh, historical developments of, of the forestry industry kind of basically over the past 100 years. It was hmm. written in the early 2000s and... Yeah, it's a really interesting book. Okay, great. Yeah, and whatever resources you give, I'll put in the in the show notes sure, too yeah. for folks. Great, yeah. yeah. Um, so you recently embarked on a canoe trip of about sixty kilometers mm-hmm. in a dizzying amount of time. Yep. Yeah. We uh, we did it in uh, sixteen hours fifty five minutes. Yeah. Tell us about that trip. So that trip was with uh, myself and and three others: uh, Alain Bellevo, Chris Kennedy, and Jonathan Riley. So the four of us. Uh, undertook a trip to travel from the brackish waters of, of the St. Croix or St. Croix, as some people know it as, uh, at uh, the Bay of Fundy. And we canoed up the St. Croix and eventually, after the 60 kilometers, came out the mouth of the Ingram River into St. Margaret's Bay. So we, we crossed the entire province at, at one of its, its narrow points in, yeah, in less than a day. Did you stop at all? Yeah, this was in early May, so there, it was still a little cold. Um, and there was one moment where there was a fairly torrential downpour. And uh, we did stop to get, get a little warmed up and, and not suffer too much. And kind of we had some changes of clothes and just kind of changed that out. So, okay. so it wasn't as miserable. <laughs> wow. I'm curious what, what you know about the canoe route you took as a traditional Mi'kmaq route as well. I don't know a lot about it. We didn't do kind of an analysis into the, the okay. history side of it. It's, it's more through uh, oral history mm-hmm. that, um, that it, is, it has long been established as, as a very well-used traditional route. Uh, I've heard it described by some of the Mi'kmaq folks that I've talked to as being uh, the equivalent to an ancient highway mm-hmm. that because Pinook Lake is, is so long, uh, and a lot of how Mi'kmaq folks in, in previous years got around the province was through canoe. So it, it meant that it was a really great place to facilitate kind of large uh, areas, which maybe there was a lot of trade going on and a lot of cross-community pollination and, and lots of ways to connect communities. For sure, it was it was a, a very important area for that kind of landscape connectivity on, on a community scale. Mm-hmm. Can you um, like take us to a moment of beauty or surprise during that trip? Uh, it's the 
canoe equivalent of running a marathon. So it, 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 it was a little tricky. Like obviously when you're in a canoe, you have a little bit more time for reflection, but mm. because we, we weren't sure uh, how long this was going to take, our, our plan was to get it done in a day. And we had done sections of it independently, but never all together. And it, it was quite a dry April. So a bunch of the rivers were a little bit more shallow than we would have liked. So some sections took us a fair bit longer. So we, we didn't really have a whole lot of moments to kind of pause and, and reflect. We, we started at uh, 1.30 a.m. Uh, at, at the mouth of the St. Croix. And uh, once was, we... Sorry, is that so that you were hoping to get to your destination in daylight the following day? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The most difficult parts uh, were, were going up the river. Okay. So we needed to ensure that that's when we were kind of most uh, energetic um, and... We wanted to get that that done first. Wow, even though it was in the dark. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but that kind of adds to the, the difficult part of it. But we yeah. also really needed to make sure that we had daylight uh, coming down the, the lower sections of the Ingram River because those are a little intense as well. And and probably one of the most, some of the most magical moments were on Pinook Lake, which is the longest lake in the province. Uh, we, we canoed about a third of that. And most of that was, was in the dark. It was, it was a very clear night and it was not quite a full moon, but it was quite close to a full moon. Mm. So it, it was definitely some beautiful kind of somewhat surreal moments of just how quiet things were and, oh. and how placid the water was and, and how bright the moon was as well. Wow. Yeah. I've never canoed at night. I yeah. feel like I should try that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely something that uh, you want to make sure you have lots of safety uh, incorporation into how you do that because it, it is quite a potentially dangerous thing to do. But um, we, we had a lot of safety measures in place. We had a lot of backups for people that knew our route and, uh, and knew when we were going to be checking in and when we were going to be reaching certain destinations. So it's something that you do want to have at least two boats uh -huh, um, and that are always kind of keeping tabs on each other because if you're just one boat then it, it can be a little bit difficult to mitigate that safety hazard right yeah. yes okay well thanks for the safety tips too mm. yeah um so aside from um a f probably a fun adventure wh why did you do that the the main reason that we did it it's something that uh Alain and i talked about close to two years ago we we started talking about it where we wanted to draw attention to the area that I've been working on, and, and he's done a lot of sampling with me through through his work as well. We've we've documented a lot of species at risk and, and old forests in an area that myself, through the St. Margaret's Bay Stewardship Association, has been trying to get protected, and that's the Ingram River Wilderness Area. So a large portion of our trip took us through that area. So Alain had proposed this idea to me where it's both, as you say, it's a really fun and, and uh, somewhat intense, but for, for those who like that kind of thing, it's, it's a very memorable experience. But it also helps to showcase that that's how small Nova Scotia is, that you can canoe across it in, in less than a day, which is quite remarkable. That's, that's something that is a very unique problem to the Maritimes, but especially Nova Scotia and PEI, is just how small some of these pinch points are. And by extension, how crucial it is that we have ecological and landscape level planning that incorporates these areas that are so fragile and so important. It, it means that if we don't have adequate conservation measures in place, then a lot of the entire province is affected. And in the area that we were going through, uh, as I said earlier, Pinook Lake is, is the longest lake in the province. So 
it it literally almost spans that entire length and it means that from a, a terrestrial or, or land-based standpoint all wildlife that migrates from one point of the province east to west to the other needs to cross either north or south of of uh, Pinook Lake hmm. and there's quite a small window on on either side on the north side it's kind of the Windsor Kentville area which is very agriculturally developed and then on the south side, it's it's kind of Mahone and, and St. Margaret's Bay. And there's just a small little piece of forested land that's that's less than 20 kilometers. It means that the majority of terrestrial migration needs to go through that corridor. Hmm. And that's a big part of what we're, we're trying to achieve with the Ingram River Wilderness Area. So we were, we're trying to showcase that. It's so small that you can do this. Right. So, so you put in a proposal, your group, to have the government designated a wilderness area. And, and now it's just up for discussion you're trying to create more public awareness about it because the government hasn't decided to designate it is that the status yeah so the the kind of long story is that the St. Margaret Space Stewardship Association the the charity that I work for our mandate area is the watershed of St. Margaret's Bay so every river system that flows into it we kind of we have a line around those watersheds and and that's where we we conduct our our efforts to ensure good ecological and community-based stewardship so there's always been kind of some some level of involvement in that for, for over 20 years, um, just kind of looking at, at that watershed-based approach. Uh, and then more recently, uh, in 2012, the Bowater Mersey uh, Pulp and Paper Company, which was owned at the time by uh, a, a company called Resolute uh, Forest Products, or Abitibi Bowater, was, was also one of the names it went by. They had a very large amount of land holdings uh, that they were going to sell. They were going to shut down operations in Nova Scotia. And it was something that a lot of groups were concerned around who that land would go to because it meant a a huge shift in in how essentially the the province would be managed. And um, so our, our group started a campaign that was called Buy Back the Mersey. Oh, that was your... Yep. Okay. Yeah, we started that to try to motivate the government to purchase these lands to bring them back to public domain rather than private hands. Uh, Because at that time, especially, the most interested party uh, was the parent company of Northern Pulp to to buy the lands, um, Mm. which doesn't have a great track record of managing forests through uh, a balance of ecological values, but also community values. So we were successful in that campaign. It got kind of province-wide support that, that people did want this, uh, this land to be purchased and, and made public. Yeah, that was a huge success. Yeah. Or it seems so at the time. How do you feel like it's gone now, like with the way the forests are being managed? There's, there's definitely positive and negative. Um, as a result of that, there was uh, the government issued uh, an RFP or request for proposals to for groups to submit uh, plans for community forests. So essentially that's what, that opportunity that the land brought is what spawned the Mi'kmaq Forestry Initiative, which now has a, a good chunk of land in, in a couple areas of the province for their uh, community-based forestry, as well as the Medway Community Forest Co-op. And it, it meant that there was uh, a lot of new opportunity for community-based forest management to kind of have a little bit more of a direct link to the community that these forests exist within and and a more of a connection to the ecology of those and the impact that uh, responsible management has, both in, in a what bad management, how that results on, on impacting the community and, and the benefits that good management can bring as well. 
So we, we had created one of those proposals for, for what's called the St. Margaret's District, which is about 55,000 hectares. Okay. Uh, but that, was, that ended up being rejected. They wanted to kind of only have a few essentially pilot projects to, to move forward, and that was the Mi'kmaq Forestry Initiative and, and Medway. Hmm. So we, we put a lot of work into that, um, and it, w- it was sad to see it rejected. But um, we carried on and moved forward and continued to just have our, our kind of general stewardship of the area. But flash forward to kind of 2015, 2016, there was this constant announcement of clear cuts that were going to be occurring back there. And we would submit feedback and raise concerns and just kind of be dismissed and they would move forward. And then what kind of pushed it to the next level was that there was a very large amount of cuts that were proposed that totaled just under a thousand acres. And they represented almost the entire view plane of uh, what's called Scout Island back there. There's probably many Scout Islands across the province, but there's one back there. And Scouts Canada actually got involved and said, hey, we bring hundreds, if not thousands of Scouts to this place every year. Please don't clear cut their experience. um, And this will impact us for a long time. And we bring them to these forests for education and to have an organization like Scouts Canada kind of get involved in that kind of advocacy effort is, is quite uncommon. Huh. So that, that got a lot of attention at the time and it got a lot of people outraged and it motivated us to, okay, it's we were successful in getting this land purchased. It's, it's now public, but there's not a whole lot of community involvement in how it gets managed. The, we don't really have a meaningful conversation occurring as to what our community needs, how it uses it, and, and what it wants to see for landscape level planning, and how our, our own community gets gets managed. Uh, so it meant that we then started to look into the possibility of either getting a large chunk of the area protected, protected as either a wilderness area or a provincial park, and, and we ended up pursuing wilderness area because it, it made more sense. Uh, provincial parks have a lot of infrastructure and staff, and it's kind of managed with a, a lot of the intent is to facilitate user experience. The area that we were trying to get protected was just a little bit too large for, for that kind of approach. So wilderness area went forward, and uh, we're currently requesting that a, a roughly 12,000 hectare wilderness area get designated as Ingram River Wilderness Area. And again to speak to what i said earlier the the st margaret's district is about fifty-five thousand hectares and it actually has a below average percentage of protected land in in nova scotia so right now that sits at about 21 percent and across the province the average protection of public land is about 30 percent okay so we're not looking for anything above and beyond we're looking for something that brings the area to more of of the average balance that that Nova Scotians get um, in an area that is has been identified for a lot of reasons as as being ecologically significant, not not just the uh, connectivity standpoint, but it's also an area that we've documented and, and the Department of Natural Resources have have documented literally the oldest tree in the Maritimes, and that's within our proposed area. Oh, really? Yep. How old is the oldest tree, and what kind of tree is it? Uh, it's an eastern hemlock that's five hundred and thirty-two years old. How did they get such an exact... So uh, you can take what's called a, a core sample. You okay. use an increment borer, which is essentially a drill that has like the center of it is, is hollow. So you, you drill in with this hand drill bit, and then you can extract a cylinder of the tree. And then mm. you just use a microscope to uh, count the growth rings each year. Okay. Wow. Yeah. To think of all, all that's happened in 500 years. It's... Yeah. Yeah, it would have been here uh, before 
Europeans yeah. Um, yeah, in Nova Scotia. Yeah. One, one of the other really uh, special natures of the proposed Ingram River Wilderness Area is, is that it's basically directly aligns with what's been identified as core habitat for the mainland moose. Hmm. So what that means is that it's been identified by the, the group that uh, addresses the recovery of mainland moose as being essential for the species survival. That's kind of the definition of core habitat. So the fact that it's got the oldest tree and, and by extension forest in the Maritimes, it's got core habitat for the survival of mainland moose. We've got 18 documented species at risk that are, are present, so 17 beyond the, the mainland moose. And it's been identified for a very long time as being crucial for cross-provincial connectivity. So, And it has all these recreation values that we've documented as well. And with the, the uh, legislative requirements of the provincial goals for protection of, of 20% by 2030, we're starting to get to a point where it almost seems odd that a formalized uh, intention to protect the area is not moving forward. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of less of a question of should we protect this and why the heck is this not protected yet? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think? Uh, we're still in Nova Scotia implementing what's called the, the R Parks and Protected Areas Plan that was created in 2013. There's still over 100 sites that have been pending uh, for, for years. Really? Yeah, um, so it's unfortunate how much time this has, has taken. And after the Parks and Protected Areas Plan is, is implemented, there's still an additional 330,000 hectares that are required to get uh, Nova Scotia up to 20% protection. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot of ground to be made up, and that's that's part of it, is that there's there hasn't been uh, the necessary capacity within government to achieve those objectives. And then within government, there is um, essentially some conflict of interest between some of the departments where protected areas, advancement and and administration management occurs under Nova Scotia environment and climate change, the protected areas and ecosystems branch of of that department. And they're separate from the Department of Natural Resources and Renewables, which essentially holds the keys to land management decisions. Mm. And they also are charged with the facilitation of forestry industry. So there's kind of an inherent conflict of interest that occurs there that if you protect an area, you're making it excluded from the potential for forestry operations. But they also have to decide whether or not areas get protected. It's It doesn't actually translate that way in the way that the government departments are supposed to function, but that's kind of the way that it's it's happened over the years is that Nova Scotia environment more or less needs the go-ahead from the Department of Natural Resources in order for areas to get protected. Mm-hmm. But the competing interests of forestry values and, and some areas just aren't going to be very suitable for protection in terms of maybe we do need those areas for forestry values or, or maybe the, the area does have a large percentage uh, of protection. Like some places in the province have as much as like two thirds of the public land is protected. That's, that's kind of adequate. But in, again, in our area, it's, it's 21%. So mm-hmm. there is a balance to be made and we need to be able to identify these areas that are under, uh, underrepresented and do have these extreme ecological significances. Uh, we need to have the government capacity to, move forward on that to to not have these things stalled um, and mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure what continues to gum that process up besides 
political and, and uh, bureaucratic uh, lack of will and capacity. I think those it's kind of a combination of all those things. Okay. Yeah, and I know a lot of people are worried that the longer it takes, like they're protecting that land anyway by eight years from now. So the longer it takes, the more that can be logged potentially badly in the meantime. Yeah, it's both. The, there's the forestry concern of like when we if we clear cut, like let's say that that 500 year old hemlock stand, if we clear cut that, it's not going to be 500 years before that ecosystem comes back. It's going to be closer to a thousand years hmm. because you can clear cut an area and trees are going to grow back, but an ecosystem takes way, way longer. And with our shade tolerant species like hemlock and, and sugar maple and uh, red spruce, a lot of these other ones, they're not going to grow up in a clear cut. So you're going to have several forest generations or successions that mm-hmm. are going to need to occur before we get back to that climax ecosystem. Right. So it seems like it's quite urgent for this to to be addressed. <laughs> yeah, we, we need to... Whenever there's high conservation value forests that are identified, there there should be kind of an automatic moratorium that, okay, we've identified it, we're going to put a pause on this until we, we kind of work this out, until we identify what areas are going to be protected, we're just not going to touch them. Is it true that once an area has been proposed by a group as a wilderness area that it, it is paused until the decision is made, or is that not the case? That's, that's the case if it's committed to by government. So the areas that are pending and have been pending for almost 10 years in the Parks and Protected Areas Plan, those are those are safe, um, generally speaking, like we saw with Owl's Head, that they're not always safe, right. but that's that's quite uncommon, uh, the, the case of Owl's Head. There's only be a couple of instances like that in, in Nova Scotia's history. But in terms of like mining or forestry development uh, or, or land swaps, though, it's quite secure. Um, those sites will, will be protected down the line. So the Ingram River area is not pending yet? No, we, we were able to get uh, what the government, the previous government committed to as Island Lake Wilderness Area. So that's a roughly 4,000 hectare area. Uh, originally, our proposal was for about 15,000, 16,000 hectares. Okay. And there was a process that was undertaken called a biodiversity assessment, which wasn't exactly what we were calling for, but it was still a useful exercise to help determine that much more of the conservation values in the area. And, and that process did lead to the identification of, of a lot of old growth forests and high conservation value forests. But it, it only translated to roughly about a quarter of the area that we were hoping to get protected. So that is a pending protected area. And it's definitely not a victory to kind of just say like, ah, well, it's not a big deal. Like, that's 4,000 hectares is, is, a, is a lot of land and it's, it's, not, uh, it's not nothing. That's great. Um, and for perspective, uh, oh, good. Head. I was trying to wrap my head around these big numbers. Yeah, Owl's Head, um, which has, has so much support and, and so many people know about now, is 285 hectares. Uh, okay. And then places that, that people um, might be used to exploring, like the Blue Mountain Birch Cove Lakes Wilderness Area, that's very popular in, in the Halifax area. It's, a, I think, roughly 2,000 hectares. Okay. So about, and you said 4,000 is the, the... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So the, the website that people can check out is protecttheingram.com. Yep. And yep. and are there like specific ways of support you would like to ask for if people are interested or what can we do to help? Yeah, the main way that anybody uh, can help Ingram River Wilderness Area is to reach out to us um, so you can get in touch with us through that website. And 
it's it's similar to the general political action uh, or kind of government action is is to just talk to your MLA and say that I support more protected areas and, and Ingham River uh, is is one that's definitely been identified by governments, both previous and this one, as, as something that's significant. There is capacity to help move that forward simply by, by reaching out to your MLA and saying, hey, this is something that I want to see for our province. I, I do want to see Ingram River Wilderness Area protected. And and across the province, even if, if you live in, in Meat Cove or Yarmouth, uh, especially if they're a conservative MLA, because that's the current government, they mm-hmm. all talk, right? They all say, this is something that my constituents are telling me. And and that's that's powerful, right? To yeah. to have that kind of essentially indirect route directly to the premier is is when there's enough identification of that as being significant that that will uh, make ripples. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, yeah. Thanks for that reminder that mm. people do have more power than we sometimes think. Yeah, or realize yeah. hopefully. <laughs> A few months ago, I began this podcast because it felt important to me to look for the shared ground in our societal values and to explore all the great things happening towards thriving forests, and also learn more about the challenges that face us. After many weeks of spending around 20 hours per episode, and some money on equipment and podcast hosting, it became clear that although I am doing this because I want to, and believe in this as a contribution I can make to the land and the community, I also need to think more about sustainability for myself, so I can continue with this podcast indefinitely. So, after quite a bit of research and consideration, I decided to sign up for Kofi, which is a crowdfunding site where folks can, without any sign-in required, donate a small one-time or recurring amount to support the podcast. If you are able and want to consider supporting me, you can find a donate link on each of the episodes at the Shared Ground Captivate website, as well as at the bottom of the description of the podcast, where you will see a link to support the show or go to the Shared Ground Podcast Facebook page for the link, or go to kofi.com, that's ko-fi.com, and search for Shared Ground. I'm just one person, and any little bit helps. Um, the government has stopped using the term clear-cutting. Mm-hmm. But there's all these other um, terms and different language that is quite confusing to non-forestry people. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it would be lengthy for you to describe the different prescriptions and what they mean and or talk about what you think about the change in language, if it's useful or not. Yeah, uh, there's there's positives and negatives. Um over the years, we have seen that a number of times when there's been a commitment to reduce clear cutting. Uh, there has been a, just a changing of language, like use of terms like mosaic cut or even aged treatments or uniform shelter woods, which are uh, two stage clear cuts. Um, when you look up how the National Forestry Database defines them, it's they're a two stage clear cut. But on a provincial scale, there was some kind of manipulation of, well, we're not clear-cutting because it's it's this. With the implementation of, of some of the reforms from that Leahy's report was recommending, there there has been quite a lot of shift in languages. The the main thing that I think is is easy for people to grasp is that our, our Wabanaki or, or Acadian forest ecosystem is very complex. We've got some of the highest levels of 
diversity in our for- natural forest ecosystems in Canada, yeah. because we're at that perfect meeting point of the the boreal forest meeting the southern temperate forest. So we've got representation of, of both those species and, and both those physical dynamics and, and ecosystems. So that means that in a natural state, almost none of Nova Scotia, except for a few areas in the highlands of Cape Breton, would have even-aged forests. There'd be pockets here and there that would be disturbed by wind events and things like that, but it wouldn't be to a large scale. It would be to, like, you occasionally get big events like Hurricane Juan that will disrupt larger areas, but for the most part, most of our forests would have small-scale gap disturbances that were driven by wind. So it, it means that any forestry treatment that converts our natural multi-age multi-species ecosystems into a reduced number of species and a more even age representation that's when it's it's no longer really an ecological forestry application if it if it doesn't adhere to that standard of of continuing to facilitate a multi-age multi-species structure then you can't claim that it's ecological forestry here in Nova Scotia Okay, so so what are some of the existing ones that you we would agree are more ecological? Things like commercial thinning, when people see that on, there's the portal that people can use called the Harvest Plans Map Viewer and can comment on individual harvests. Uh, commercial thinning is usually fair, if it's done properly, is is fairly innocuous. It's It's not something that, if it's done right, it doesn't have a huge impact. A big part of the discussion around forestry, though, needs to be that it's it's one part how forestry is done and what kind of treatments are done, but it's also a lot about when forestry is done and where it's done, uh, because certain treatments that might be in keeping with the ecological forestry elements of how many trees do we leave and what kind of species diversity do we leave if the other two are not in alignment. So if it's in an area, this proposed cut that would otherwise align with ecological values, if it's in an area like the Ingram River Wilderness area that is known for connectivity, mm-hmm. then it it's still detracting from ecological values in a way that it doesn't necessarily need to. And then from a time-based perspective, if you do that in the window of late April to right now, mid-July, then you're doing it during the peak of breeding bird season. And as has been admitted by the previous uh, manager of, of Westfor on CBC, when you do forestry during that time, it is inevitable that you're going to be destroying either birds or birds' nests, which is a violation of the Migratory Birds Convention Act, which is an international set of laws that Canada has agreed to. Until someone takes them to court again, or like that can just continue? One of those strange... Yeah unfortunate yeah it's it's just something that doesn't really get enforced there are groups though like the the medway community forest co-op commits to to what we call a a singing season so Mm -hmm. we just don't do operations during that peak because even with the best of intentions you're gonna be killing birds Mm -hmm. uh, because on the scale that a lot of operations are happening it's through these large-scale machines it's not and even with i i know somebody in in the valley that accidentally cut down a barred owl's nest but they were people who only had the best of intentions and they just cut down one tree (laughs) so even when you're really trying not to harm yeah it's it's not it's uh it's not fair to the forester to be able to be fully aware of that it's it's just not really possible uh, mm-hmm. one of my, my, uh, other mentors and, and colleagues, Donna Crossland, in her words, she was saying, I'm a, I'm a forest ecologist. 
this that's what I do. I spend a lot of my time documenting uh, migratory birds and, and documenting them by song. They're very difficult to to find and to identify, and it's not fair to ask somebody in in a heavy machine mm. to do that same. If if we have a challenge doing that as forest ecologists, and and our whole intention of being there is to document these values. How can you expect somebody who's operating a, a large machine to, to do that? It's, it's not fair to them. Yeah. So the only way around that is to have a pause during that, that time of year to ensure that that ecological value is, is facilitated. So it's, it's another one that if, if we don't have a pause during this, the peak of, of breeding bird season or, or singing season, then we're not doing ecological forestry. Right. So um, I guess I'm I'm wondering about early, earlier this spring when the government announced that it was going to be implementing another part of the Leahy report, and what you think of that? Is it as good as it sounds? What I mean, you've already I guess talked quite a bit about what else is needed still, but how does kind of that fit into the bigger picture, and what does it really mean that that happened? Yeah, that those were definitely some some good steps in the right direction. It uh, they'll translate to a meaningful reduction of of impacts in the forest. Uh, so there there has been some some change for sure that that should be identified and should be celebrated. And it's it's definitely better uh, post June first was when that went through than than previous to that. It's one of the three boxes though that i was mentioning earlier right that it's it's the how we do forestry has improved not Mm -hmm. to a point of where forest ecologists are going to say mission accomplished there's still a lot of work to be done but it is better okay but that doesn't address the issue of where and when Mm -hmm. which are just as crucial so it's kind of 33 percent complete right okay so the the where would be that's the focusing on implementing the landscape level planning and the when Who's working on that, or what's that under? It, it's it's under the same department. It's under the Department of Natural Resources and Renewables. It it could be something that they decide um, quite rapidly on is that that's going to be one of their policies. They don't need. There is no need to create a new law because the laws exist and and they continue to be broken. Uh, so it it just would need to be a policy shift to better address that issue in a way that actually. Yeah, it does not violate international law. There, there's not as as uh, as I said, the previous manager of West were admitted. It's inevitable. So there's there's no way around it unless we we start to to have that pause. I really just don't understand how these laws can be broken, especially international law. But when the Supreme Court of Canada, like, what are the? There's no repercussions. Nope. Yeah, it's uh, it's extremely rare for uh, charges to be laid. For, for those to move forward. It has happened, though, in the past. There, okay. there was a big one in New Brunswick a few years ago where a forestry company uh, cut down what was a great blue heron rookery, where there's quite a number of them. And and ones like that are, are a lot easier to identify because they've got these big nests, and, and they're often very well known by mm-hmm. local ecologists that just kind of know exactly where they are and have documented them for, for years. It's a lot harder with a lot of our small migratory birds, like species of warblers, that are, can fit very comfortably in the palm of your hand. Uh, and their nests, as well, are not much bigger than that. Mm. It's quite hard to identify them at 20 meters in, into the air. It's it's not something that you can reasonably see. 
and the only way to, to identify their, their presence reliably uh, is, is through song. So it's uh, kind of a don't ask, don't tell, and just the law gets broken so frequently that it's not something that everybody, uh, everybody just knows they can kind of get away with. Yeah, that's crazy to me. Well, um, are there particular things that you notice that like non-forestry people, people that are interested in forestry and, and, and love forests and, you know, environmentalists or just people that, you know, like to be out in the rest of nature, um, do you think there are things that people are confused about or misunderstand that you'd like to set the record straight on? There's definitely uh, a concern that, that I've had that kind of has, has continued to develop is somewhat exemplary of our societal issues with this polarization mm-hmm. where a lot of the kind of status quo forestry industry I think sees protected areas as a threat so there's a lot of opposition and misinformation that gets put out uh, in regard to what protection for an area means for example there was quite a lot of odd questions I'll call them that was put out by Westfor when Island Lake Wilderness Area part of our proposed Ingram River Wilderness Area was was proposed for public consultation they engaged in in interviews and in promotional education quote educational materials that uh let's call them information well it's it's even odd to call them that because they they framed it in such a way that would lead people to conclusions that were false. They weren't outright spreading false information, Mm. but they framed it as, if this area gets protected, uh, you'll have to ask the government, why can't I hunt anymore? Why can't I fish? Why can't I hike? So they're not making a statement, they're making a question, but the answer is, you can hunt, Uh you can fish, you can hike. And, And so that was really frustrating to kind of see the largest crown licensee west for take that approach Mm. because i can't imagine that they didn't know the answer to those questions Mm. um so i I, it concerned me to see that that approach where i I can only imagine that part of, of the way that they were were thinking is that uh when areas get protected it can mean that certain trails will will be more monitored and, and managed but a lot of the trails that go through public land are not legal anyways <laughs> so it, in, in the most case it, it wouldn't change a lot of these designations uh, and and there's a really long history of protected areas working with ATV communities to ensure that their use is is perpetuated and enshrined so that's something that that we took extremely seriously with our proposal and actually mapped out the largest density of proposed exempt roads for any protected area that uh, that exists in huh. Nova Scotia we we mapped out over 130 kilometers of ATV roads that we said wow. these have to be exempt so the community can continue to use it in this way wow and, and that has an ecological cost, but it's about balance, right? As mm-hmm. I said, it's about compromise and ensuring that community values are upheld. Right, so yeah. that, that's a way that a lot of Nova Scotians like to use protected areas. Of so, course. So it, it needs to be a component of the conversation is, is how do we ensure that we can achieve greater protection 
but ATVing is not really the largest uh, vector for for ecological damages, and and uh, it's the damages are often a little bit shorter term, and and they can be managed and and mitigated in a way that is sustainable. Right, and then you're including more people and bringing more people around for a shared cause yep. instead of pitting um, hikers against ATVers, for instance, when we all want healthy forests to enjoy. Yeah, people and people do it in different ways, right? Like people have different mobility issues that mm-hmm. you don't want to kind of close that door for somebody who can't uh, do a sixty-kilometer canoe marathon, right? Do you sure? Something uh, that is is kind of off topic a little bit that I, I did want to talk about at some point was with the canoe trip of canoeing down from from one end of the province to the other. It was an experience that is is hard to describe and it's it's something that as i'm sure a lot of your listeners would know that when you drive through an area you get to know it a little bit you see a lot of nice sights and you Mm -hmm. look at the shops and you look at some of the forests but kind of bicycling through it or running through it walking through it or canoeing through it is is a much more accessible way to kind of feel connected to the land Mm -hmm. and through canoeing from literally one side of the province to the other helped to really just put it all in perspective it helped to bring this level of connection that what was taking my awareness to a bit of another level and i think it would would do the same for a lot of nova scotians to maybe not do that trip in one day because that's a little intense but to do Mm -hmm. it over two or three or or four days um and and just experience that if you start on one side of the province and you end up in the other like that's just a really amazing way to experience Nova Scotia. That sounds incredible for sure. Yeah, it's it's something that you you can't really get that connection until you experience it, right? So it's mm-hmm. there's kind of one of the big things that a lot of us always say in in trying to further sustainable forestry and, and conservation in Nova Scotia is that one of our biggest challenges is that a lot of Nova Scotians don't really know what they're missing. So they don't know that these amazing canoe routes uh, exist, that a lot of these hiking trails exist. They they know Kedgie, they know Cape Breton Highlands National Park, and, and they know kind of a collection of these here and there. Mm-hmm. But they don't know that we have forests that are over 500 years old. We don't know that there are, are trees that... Uh, I was I was at one recently that myself and, and the chair of the Stewardship Association, who's also over six feet tall, we can't connect hands when hugging around it. Wow! The, the, those forests are are out there. They're they're extremely rare, but they exist, and that's what our province is capable of if we treat it right. Mm-hmm. So we need more Nova Scotians to experience these, get connected to them, and then be an advocate for them to kind of stand up and say, "Hey." This is, is something that's possible, and I, I want this in my life. This improves my quality of life. It makes Nova Scotia an attractive place to bring kind of amazing immigrants. We, we want to, to bring the best of the best of the world, and, and that's going to be people from, from all around the world. We, we want to be a, a place where the world looks at us and, and, and goes, that's, they've got it right. They know how to balance these, these things that will help for future solutions of addressing climate change and mm-hmm. providing quality of life and, and place for people to be physically active and, and mentally uh, healthy. Like that's There's going to be this insatiable demand for protected areas moving, moving forward that in Nova Scotia, there's so much potential to harness. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I guess when you were talking a little earlier, I was thinking too about, you know, what people can do. And one of the things would be 
understanding what a wilderness area is. And if you're out somewhere and you hear someone say, well, we won't be able to hunt anymore, you can say, oh, no, actually, that's not true. Like just even knowing those few things that it doesn't necessarily put ATVing off limits and it Mm -hmm. doesn't disallow hunting and you can still fish and you can enjoy it more than you could if you were trying to go hang out in a clear cut, that's for sure. Yeah, there's a really great page that was put up by uh, Protected Areas and Ecosystems Branch of Nova Scotia Environment Climate Change that is just the frequently asked questions about wilderness areas. Uh, And it's just that simple. If you Google, can I hunt in a wilderness area, that's going to be one of the first things that that comes up. You'll find that wilderness areas in particular uh, support a very diverse array of community uses and recreation uses that uh, are not as restrictive as as some might lead you to believe. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm leapfrogging a bit. You say no, something and then I yep. respond. And, and But now I'm thinking more about what will make Nova Scotia an attractive place for people to come to and to be um, economically sustainable in the future, how, how having a strong, um, healthy ecological system can facilitate that. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's kind of in line with having to look at just everything more holistically. Are there like advocacy groups that you know of or, or individuals putting pressure on the government from like other other values to like immigration and health and education, all these interrelated things? Like, are there movements happening along those lines? I'd say a lot of that is in fairly early stages. We've had this long history of viewing resources through uh, what's easily quantifiable from a monetary value. Uh, So how exactly can we determine how much wood fibers in this forest and what will that sell for? And and that's the value of this land. It's only really been in the past few years that we've started to place economic values on things like carbon sequestration, water filtration, mental health is a really hard and physical health is a really hard one to put a number on. But in a publicly funded healthcare system that has a dollar value attached to it. Right. So with the Ingram River Wilderness Area, we partnered with Dalhousie University to do uh, an economic assignment of what the ecosystem services value is for our proposed protected area. Okay. And that ranges on the extreme low end to $18 million a year. And on the extreme high end, uh, it was $76 million a year. So on average, probably somewhere in the ballpark of $45, $50 million a year that's generated in a cost deferral standpoint, it's not a revenue generation, but it's reducing costs that we would otherwise be paying in some other form. Hmm. And we need to start to harness that in how we manage our lands is, is not necessarily what can be gained from clear cutting or mining or, or development of this for a, a new condominium development, but what do we lose through those ecosystem services? That needs to be part of the economic assignment and, and equation, because mm-hmm. if it's not, then we're not benefiting anyways it's it's not a, a an equation that makes sense from a conservation standpoint and it's not one that makes sense from a long-term economic standpoint yeah and and a slight reframing of that i guess would be what can we gain from not doing those things yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Hmm. because that that investment like you you clear cut the area or or you mine it those are those resources are gone for a long time but mm-hmm those returns of ecosystem services that's every year forever yeah it's not something that you need to wait 40 60 100 500 years before that investment is going to come back again it's there every single year putting more and more money it's uh it's the way that i've heard bob bancroft describe it before one time was that when you're clear-cutting 
land, you're not taking away from the interest that you might make on a financial investment, you're taking away from the principal. Mm. So it means that you diminish your capacity to continue to earn or grow and develop every every time you do it. You're just making it a little bit worse. But mm-hmm. things like ecosystem services, we're not even taking off the interest. It would continue to grow and, and give more returns every year. Well, that's a really clear analogy. It just mm. seems like there can be no arguing with that. Yeah, you'd hope. Yeah. But people find a way. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I think you've made some excellent points and really clarified a lot of things. And I think, um, you know, when I think about each of us as citizens being able to express our concerns and priorities to our MLAs, there's a lot in this conversation that people could choose to say, hey, these things are important to mm-hmm. me. Yep. Yeah. Um, maybe we can end with, um, I was wondering generally what is possible regarding our forests and natural lands? Like what wonderful vision can you imagine working towards? Well, we've got the goals of the Environmental Goals and, and Climate Change Reduction Act of, of 20% of, of Nova Scotia being protected would mean that uh, roughly 50% of public land would be protected. So we kind of have a lot of the framework that would be needed to get to that balance because that's what groups, international groups like the World Wildlife Fund, they say 50% for nature. Mm. So if we have the framework. We just need to ensure that governments follow that that law, that legally obligated legislation. We we need to ensure that uh, those those do move forward. And then we're coming from a, a standpoint of the incremental improvements that occur in forestry practices, mining practices. That'll be a lot more tolerable. Whereas right now, as I say, it's a lot of folks are kind of in a polarized standpoint where it, there's this we're under a lot of pressure. We we need to ensure that areas are identified for conservation values uh, before they get cut, before they get mined. Uh, so it's it's really important that there's the framework in place to achieve that that goal. Um, and, and until it is identified, then it's it's not it's going to be more difficult to, to realize that as time goes on. So the, the framework is largely there with that. We just need governments to follow through on it and we need uh citizens of nova scotia to demand that they do so Mm -hmm. that's that's a really big part of the puzzle and then and then after that there's gonna be ongoing conversations with with ongoing science that informs how we could continue to do just a little bit better and and once we we do have that balance it'll it'll make that a lot easier for all all parties because there'll be more of a, a defined set of parameters under which we're all going to operate under. Right, because a lot of people are just trying to do their jobs and are probably quite confused trying to keep up with all of this right now and what does it mean for us and a lot of fear and uncertainty and then that that will be gone over time mm-hmm. once these things are in place. Yeah, and for example, with, with our proposed Ingram River Wilderness Area, we've approached guides in the past, uh, like out, outdoor recreation guides, to see what kind of environment they would need to develop roots and and uh, make it uh, that kind of economic opportunity but it's it's something that why would a business person invest in that time that it takes to plan out a route and ensure that you've got kind of all the right stops all the right places to bring people to and it's something that you're very well versed in to uh, both provide an amazing experience for your your the people that you're guiding but also mitigate the safety hazards as as much as possible like all these things that go into the creation and development of that kind of economic opportunity 
why would somebody develop that in an area that might be mined down the road? It might be clear cut. Yeah. Why would you develop a route that goes to uh, a really beautiful forest if you don't know that it's going to be there in five years time? Mm-hmm. So it's it's something that until uh, areas like this that that have this level of opportunity until they get protected, who's going to invest in that kind of development until then? So it's it's all about seizing the potential opportunity that that is is being squandered by the future of the area being uncertain mm-hmm. and, and that's going to be the case all throughout Nova Scotia is, is that we have so many opportunities to transition to a different type of land management it's it's removing one type of land management but it doesn't mean that it's, it's prohibiting economic development it's mm-hmm. just going to be transitioning to something else and speaking of diversity right way more opportunities of different types yeah so many Nova Scotians uh, the forests that they're accustomed to are, are not a good reflection of what our forests are capable of. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think we kind of have fallen into a, a bit of an abusive relationship where we're kind of told, like, this is the best you can do. You can't do better than this. So stick around and then this is what you get. Yeah. <laughs> but there's so much uh, amazement from people that, that when I show them a photo of some of the old growth forests that we've documented in Ingram River Wilderness Area that uh, a, a number of people independently over the years have said to me, no, no, that's that must be BC. You're joking. Like, wow. It's not something that, that a lot of Nova Scotians experience. Uh-huh. So until we know what's possible, like, right. if you don't know any better than, than kind of the scrubby forests that we have throughout mo- most of the province, that's a lot of people just accept. That's that's what it's like here. Right. And and why are you making such a fuss of protecting that? Yeah, trees grow back. They'll, yeah. they'll be back. Don't yeah. like you clear cut it and then twenty years later you've got another forest. Right. Well, yeah, that's a really interesting thing to think about. Um with people not knowing and being able to share the existing beauty and diversity that exists here mm-hmm. and some hints of what it was like and what it could be like again or some examples. Yep. And, you know, when I'm thinking about how do we find shared ground between different perspectives and different, you know, people with different beliefs and and also what we can do as individuals, um, that seems like one of the fun things we could do as individuals is be exploring more and finding out what is here and then sharing that with other people in whatever way that people are mm-hmm. interested in sharing things, whether it's photos or bringing their friends or you know, telling their relatives and, um, yeah, that just seems like another maybe important thing that we can all be doing that's a little bit more fun and complementary to the letter writing that yeah. we need to do. Yep, for sure. As the saying goes, forests, you, you won't find Wi-Fi, but you'll get a better connection. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I appreciated Mike's reminders that we all have the ability to affect change and thinking about some ways to do that, such as enjoying and discovering underexplored areas of our region and sharing the beauty of what we have, understanding what human activities are allowed in a wilderness area, and telling our MLAs what is important to us. It is unfortunate that we have to work at keeping our governments accountable and ensure they are following the laws, but it is also within our ability to do so. So, if you live in Nova Scotia, no matter where in the province you live, Contact your MLA to tell them that the Ingram River area, as well as perhaps other proposed wilderness areas you know of, need to be protected. Surely, most people also feel strongly about the importance of a singing season, where birds are actually safe during their nesting season.
I also strongly agree that a healthy future economy relies on ecological health. Nova Scotia could be a world leader in how we relate to our lands and other species for the benefit of all. Hopefully together, we can find that path. And please consider supporting Shared Ground with a small donation, which you can make at ko-fi.com forward slash shared ground. That's ko-fi.com forward slash shared ground. Thank you for listening. We will meet again in two weeks' time. Until then, fellow humans. Thank you.